Welcome back to joffeywoodwinds.com. It's been uh, almost several years now since uh, we've had a video interview. And with the pandemic, of course, we've all become accustomed to uh, working and using Zoom. And that's opened up a great deal of uh, opportunity for many of us. And I thought I would take advantage of that um, in, in meeting with and interviewing some of our great players who are not necessarily New York based anymore, uh, both uh, people in this country and in other countries. And I'm delighted that the first uh, video interview I'm doing in these since the pandemic is with one of the greatest musicians this country has produced, one of the greatest saxophone players without argument who's ever lived. And uh, it's our pleasure to, uh, spend time today with George Young, who's out in California. And George, uh, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. And uh, I can't wait to uh, grill you with the questions and find out more about you and your career and um, hopefully information for a lot of players out there and especially young players who um, could use your guidance. So welcome. Thank you, George. Well, thank you for having me, Ed. I'm, it's an honor to be here. Uh, on your stunning series of uh, woodwinder, woodwinders, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, right. For lack of a better word. I mean, really, you're doing a tremendous job for our, our instruments, you know, and I really am honored, like I say, to be a part of it. Well, thank you. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, for me, it's like a kid going into a candy store. It's, you know, having a chance to talk with people who, I've known or I've admired and uh, a chance to get a better understanding of them. And, and I felt uh, over these last, I think, six years that I've been doing these interviews that I've learned from every single interview and been inspired by it. And, and from what I gather, many other people as well. So really, it's it's my honor to, to spend time with you. Um, and so uh, I guess, you know, uh, People in the industry, musicians, and certainly woodwind players who've been around for a while all know about you. And the text that's going to accompany this video is going to have a great deal about your, uh, your career, as well as uh, reference to your website, which is very complete and gives a great deal of information about what you have done and what you are doing. Um, but, you know, just looking briefly for, for those who are first meeting you now, uh, George was a mainstay uh, of the New York studio scene for decades, and before that was really uh, quite well known as a rising star, a, a real uh, virtuoso saxophonist and woodwind doubler. Uh, over the course of George's career, he's had made so many films. I, I think I've counted 52 films, and I'm sure it's not correct that there are more. 455 record dates hundreds of jingles, concerts, club work, TV work. Uh, you've been a leader, you've been a sideman. Um, I mean, I think I'll leave the website to cover all of it because we could spend the next hour just listing your credits, George. Um, but more importantly, let's get into your uh, career and, and how it's evolved. And 
you grew up in Philadelphia. Uh, and from what I understand, you started with clarinet at the age of six. Is that correct? No, I started with the sax. Actually, I started with the ocarina, <laughs> the tonet. When I was very young, like, let's go to the beginning. Yeah. Three, four years, you know, very early age. There was no TV. You know, I'm right. old, let's face it. <laughs> <laughs> going back, going back to the 40s, dad yeah. would come home from work. He was a factory worker. Right. And he would bring home these little toys, which were little instruments, ocarinas, tonettes, sure. slide whistles, you know. Right. Or penny whistles, as they call so are called. But anyway, we would, after dinner, he would be so tired, we would cuddle on the floor and listen to like the Lone Ranger and the Green Hornet. <laughs> and sure. I picked up by ear these songs of the, you know, like uh, Rossini and, uh, you know, the melodies. And I would, you know, figure them out. Right. Just, just by ear on, on these instruments. Right. And when we'd go over to Uncle Andy's house, uh, he'd say, play, play the Lone Ranger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Play the Green Hornet, you know? And it was hysterical because I, of course, was always embarrassed. I, I never, and until this day, I'm not that cat. I'm not the person, here I am. I'm not a here I am guy, you know? So, and that goes back to when I was a child because perhaps dad used to push it so hard, but he was ever so proud of me. And then the, as... I broke into his alto one day. <laughs> oh, your dad played? Oh yeah, he played, he got a gorgeous sound. Ah. He knew what music was. I see. You know, with cat all capitals, all, all large case. And right. he would, you know, to jump over how I got into playing on his instrument, I was scuffling the, the, day, the, the, the day the war ended, he came home from work and uh, I, I got home earlier because of the public school system was, was declared a big holiday, you know. Sure. So I just flocked home. And I was like a, I was very, like, I was like a detective. I like to root around and see what I could get into. something <laughs> new, you know, yeah, right. like lots of kids. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, remembered, I remembered he always parked the alto in its case underneath his bed. And my mother used to chase him up into, you know, get out of here, give me a headache with that thing. And he would try to woo her with its June and January and all the pop songs of that era, just, you know, just singing them out on his instrument. And I found it quite fascinating. And he opted to use the bathroom because of the tile and the acoustics it provided. I sat on the edge of the bathtub, he'd close the commode and use the towel rack as a music stand. So I'm checking this all out. So the day that the war ended and I got home, I delve into his horn, put it together like I had seen him do so many times. And I started to go at it, squawking and squeaking away, frustrated. <laughs> and the door of the bathroom opens and it's my father. And I figured, oh, he's often threatened to strap, you know, many times. <laughs> for for, for bad conduct, and I figured, oh, this is going to do it. You know, I'm finally going to get the strap, which I never really did. Instead, he had tears in his eyes. He's looking at me, this little brat, you know, broke into my stash, 
And here right. he is trying to play. Right. So he tried to teach me. I had no teaching skills. I started studying with a violinist who had a music school, Mr. Uh -huh. Hitchner. And that was the start until he said, I can't teach him anything else. Right. Dad used to bring home, I used to do my lessons, you know, the Rubank books sure. before it started. And then uh, he would bring home these standards and uh, I would, he taught me how to transpose. Now they had, they had a family band that would gather on weekends at, uh, my father had four, five brothers and sisters. I mean, it was a huge family. And they all used, to, whoever played instruments got around the piano. Uncle Louie would play the piano and then who didn't play would sing. And it would be songs of the day plus our ethnic uh, folk songs from your e Eastern European. Right. From Croatia and uh, let's see, Croatia and uh, Czechoslovakia. See those two. That was the 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 George Ernest Opoliski Jr. Hello, mother's <laughs> maiden name was Yankura, Y A N K U R A. So in searching for a handle for this marquee I was featured on, we came up with the word young. I was a young boy. At I see. <laughs> years old. So that I hand stayed with me until today. I see. Okay. But, but anyway. But, but you know, I find it interesting, the encouragement, the fact that your father had the instrument in the house, the encouragement, the fact that there was music in the family, all of this positive uh, influence is what is so necessary to motivate any child to get started in any of the arts. And I, and I have to just tell you, my father also played alto. He had an alto in the closet. It was a Buescher. Uh, and he took it out from time to time, and I just loved the sound he got. He had studied with Bill Shiner, you know, Stan Getz's old teacher. Oh, he grew yeah. up in the Bronx and, you know, that type of vibe in those in the 30s. But this, I just loved when he took out the horn and the smell of that horn, the Buescher coming out of the case. And I loved it. And for years, I could never figure out what that smell was until one day I realized it was mothballs. <laughs> <laughs> But Buescher, yeah, the Buescher was a good horn. That's what Dad had. The same thing. It really, was like Buescher. the horn of choice. Then that's right, and the metal was spectacular on those horns. Yep. Silver with the golden label. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, it's it's uh, you know that influence of the parent and hearing them play and and seeing their enjoyment playing is so important. And and I think for music going forward, music education. You know, when kids have a parent that's encouraging in music or that is in, involved in music, you can't beat that. That's the that's the one thing that has to happen to keep, you know, uh, generations of musicians occurring. And I, I'm hopeful that somehow that will keep occurring. But, you know, it, it's not like it was in the mid 20th century, for sure. Uh, but but it's just interesting. I, I just had to interrupt there because I, I saw myself, quite frankly, when you were talking. There you go. Yeah, that yeah. was a that was a golden era for kids, for sure. kids to pick up on what they were seeing and hearing, you know? Sure. I looked at this thing, it was like a, a gorgeous piece of jewelry or this pipe that Papa was playing on. And then he would bring home these songs and I would play literally whatever the melody was and he'd say, no, 
I want you to play it more musical. I want you to put your put yourself in it. You know, don't uh -huh. be an oak pusher. Be a musician. Was your dad formally trained in music, or was it, did he just it was he just picked it up uh, by ear and just learned to play? Uncle Louie, my uncle Louie, yeah, who fathered my cousin Lou Opaleski, who is a was he doesn't play anymore, and he really makes me angry. Gorgeous trumpet. He used to make the trumpet sound like flowers, you know, that gorgeous sound. He was the one that told me the softest cats can play the loudest and it'll be beautiful. Whereas you take the loudest guys that are just rough cut with this trumpet and they play fortissimo, you put, put a piano or mezzo piano up in front of them and, the, and they'll fold because the loudest cats can't play soft. And that applies to all instruments. Yes. So the softest cats can play louder than anybody, but there's going to be beautiful sound there. It, it just comes down to two things. You know, it's just about listening and being fussy. What are you hearing? Is it beautiful? Do you know how to play something beautiful instead of like a bunch of fingers and, you know, just pick it up and start, you know, like it's uh, some sort of a base, baseball bat and uh, it's like or a tennis racket. Right. No, this is an instrument capable of doing many beautiful things. And we can always go to the ugly side of things if we need to. We can get loud and harsh and brutal. We could change our mouthpiece. <laughs> Put a metal As mouthpiece. we do. <laughs> I mean... There, there's so many things, but not, not enough, you know, I get, I get students and, you know, I'll, I'll tell them, please uh, play softer. A good musician can play in a telephone booth and he can play music. Music is that most important word that has to accompany the player and his instrument, regardless of what it is. You don't just want to be a note pusher. You want to do some, you want to mold the notes into a story because it's a map on the paper. If you're improvising without paper, you do the same thing. You want to tell a story, you know? Uh, less notes and more music is, is a good theme, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and coming from you as a person who has all the technique in the world and could do anything on the horn. And yet this is this is what is is uppermost in your mind about music. And that that in itself, I think I hope will trans uh, translate to those who listen to this, especially the younger players, that um, it's everything to be able to play a melody beautifully. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting uh, in the teaching that I've done over the years. Uh, I find fewer and fewer young players, especially in alto sax, uh, talking about Johnny Hodges. Oh. And I try to always bring them back. And I say, you know, if you if you listen to Johnny Hodges once a day when you're playing alto, it, it just sets you in the right gear and all that. And they look at me a lot of times like I'm crazy. I said, no, because if you can do with Johnny, if you can just play a melody, forget about the solo, just play the melody with the inflections and the beauty that Hodges, it'll put you in a in a zone, in, in you know, in the right zone to do whatever else you want. You got to put your heart in it, Ed. Yeah. It's got to come from the heart. I mean, <laughs> so we, I mean, ment mentally and with fingers and stuff, it's all, it all plays an important part in, in the grooming and the uh, 
growing of the player. But it, the thing is, once that's all set, or you feel comfortable with your facilities that you've earned, uh, always keeping music in, in the forefront of what you're doing. If you're playing one note, or if you're playing like a little, like I tell the kids, I say, look, take those exercises and play them like they're songs, bounce them around. You, you know, you don't have to, you know, it's nice to be in step and do everything like with a metronome and stuff. That's very important. But at the same time, once you feel you really have those connections around the questionable areas like the break when you're going from D to C sharp on the saxophone or on the break on the clarinet, whatever. Once you have listened closely and very discriminately to what you're doing there and render the smoothness that it takes with the repetition, the principle of relentless pressure, the over and over of it, to massage it, then have fun with it, bounce it around, take it out of the regimentation of click, 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 and take those third and then play it in every key. And there you're on your way to building uh, a, not only facilities on your instrument with fun in mind, but you're honoring the music that's capable of coming out of those silly, basic, boring exercises. Right. Make them fun. That's the one thing with practice that kids have to learn. It can be fun. And if it's fun, you're gonna get there quicker. Right. And if you're paying attention to music, remembering, and a lot of the kids at first think I'm nuts, Music is a living thing. It's listening all the time. And if you do it justice, there will be a reward. There will definitely be a reward. If you turn that phrase with your heart in, a, in, you know, in combination with everything else, all your utilities that you've built up over your practice sessions, having fun, you'll see something will come out of there. You'll be just astounded. Wow. I wish I had that recorded. Well, I have an old expression from the studio days. The best music is never recorded. <laughs> well, that, that's true also in concert performance. Uh, the yes. best rendering of whatever you're gonna perform at a concert, you probably has done in rehearsal or a sound run check. Throughs. Run throughs in a studio. Yeah. You get a bunch of Cracker Jacks in there running the stuff down. You see those same faces you know, regardless how stupid it is, it's going to take on its elegance until the producers start to shut it down if it's a project. Yeah, right. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Well, it makes total sense. But I, for the younger people who are watching who may not have lived through uh, any of the studio work or known about jingles and, and stuff that is not great music, but you do for, to make a living, it, 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 may, it may not connect. But... <laughs> Once in a while, you'll get a Michelle Legrand or something, some some charts by Billy Byers or, I mean, yeah. you'll get something or, or those old Fletcher Henderson charts of Benny Goodman's when I got to play for Benny. Yeah. I mean, there there's so much in Louis Belson with his Tommy, uh, Tommy Newsom's charts were right. delicious. 
Yeah. I mean, his his suite that he wrote for Louis is is, I mean, it's gorgeous. I mean, the stuff that he, yeah. Uh, there, there's so much good stuff. So there are these rewards that we get, and right. what we have to sit down and play and pour pour it on, so to speak. Right. What? Uh, just a little anecdote before we get back to your earlier career. Um, when I was studying with Joe Allen as, as a young player, I was still in my teens, and I remember him saying, Ed, if you, if 10% of the, of the music you're going to play to earn a living is uh, going to be artistic, then you've done very well. <laughs> yes, this is true. Yeah. But meanwhile, you take it to that place. Regardless, if you took the gig and you're in there, and I used to make the guys mad because I was always like very religious about the music, you know, from a young kid. And we would be having to go to another jingle because it was so darn busy at that time. Right. And uh, there was an experience where double parked, you know, we got to get, no, <laughs> we, we almost got it. Let's do another take and give them, give them their worth, give them the music that's supposed to be there. Once we figured it out, because so, sometimes there are these uh, ramifications unnecessary that were all sometimes necessary. You go through them with the production behind the glass right. and they, they're hearing in a different way than you're playing it. So once you get on track with that, it might take a minute or two because, you know, getting, you know, the ego, getting the ego out of the way is, is a very important thing with playing music. You have to be selfless. You have to get out of the way and just let it happen. And whatever those, whatever those presets are that are sort of locked in, it's almost like a legal thing, that, that glass thing where they're on the other side of the glass telling you how to play because they can't do it. But they think they can hear the way it's supposed to go. Once you've gotten into their head and the time runs out, what do you do? Do you run out on it? No, you finish, you stay and you finish it. And you walk out of there proudfully, knowing you did the best you could with what you had to do it with, you know. Right. With the mentality of the, uh, I'm not going to use any bad words, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, it, yeah. Well, that, that's almost an angry, it almost becomes a confrontation. Right. Well, that, that you're speaking to the professionalism and the respect one has for music and themselves and, and, the, the, and the discipline. Yes. You know, the discipline. Yeah, it's that. Um, but let, let's go back now. I know you, as a young player, uh, studied with Carl Waxman, who was a formidable musician in New York and Philly and someone who had a huge career. I know he, he led uh, and played lead alto for Lester Lannan for decades. But he also played for several decades with the Philly Orchestra playing their sax solos. Yes, he did.
So this was a very well-versed musician. How did, how did you come to Carl Waxman? Well, I was studying clarinet with uh, Pete, oh golly, his name, it escapes me. Pete, not Lanuti was my oboe teacher. Pete Lanuti, it was, uh, anyway, he, when, when he heard me play the saxophone, <clears throat> he, he suggested Carl. He says, you gotta go to Carl. So I went over to Carl and he was, oh golly, was he strict. <laughs> oh, first of all, he made me go last. I had to sit through all of his students and sit there and watch him teach these other students. Wow. Now, did the other students have to do that similarly, or was that just for you? No, that was just for me. This didn't happen right away, but it eventually took place. And, and how old were you roughly at, how old were you at this time, roughly? Nine years old. What? That's very, you were playing clarinet and, and now saxophone by nine. Yeah. That's very young, George. And then when I was uh, 10, I, they, the oboe, I got into the oboe. What now? I mean, just to play, to be big enough to play the alto or the clarinet, to have your fingers. I mean, were you were you a bigger kid? I mean, just I'm trying to imagine holding a clarinet even at seven or eight years old. That's a, a full size clarinet. That's pretty. That's a, to cover all the holes, and uh, you were able to do that. Everything. Yeah. Everything. Wow. Sloppy though. I was. <laughs> I was very sloppy because of that. You know. Yeah. But then with Carl, as I was studying with, uh, oh, his name will come to me. I would be taught one way of playing from him, and then I go to Carl, and Carl was a whole. So I was learning two different methods of oh. playing. You mean as far as embouchure and 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 use of the breath and the tongue? I had to change everything with Carl. Wow. Yeah. He he. Uh, I was into the Closet book at that point, uh, and uh, the Trexler, uh, the Rosé book, the Trexler book for saxophone. Uh, oh, geez. I mean, Carl was, was very, very strict. He was far more strict than my clarinet teacher was. And Later in life, when he started to hire me I, as an adult now, I'm, I'm 20 years old, so time has passed and I have become a professional player. I'm playing all over the world with my group. And then I go in, uh, I'm making a transition from the saloon business and the concertizing with, with my group to uh, becoming a studio player because I was, I, my first hit was Chubby, uh, no, Chubby it was Bobby Kiss Kissing Time. Ah, yes. That was my first tenor solo. And then <clears throat> the second one was Chubby's Let's Twist Again. And then, of course, it went on from there to the, the Dovells. I can't sit down. You can't sit down. 
lightning strikes again. Vicky, Vicky, Vicky Sue Robinson's turn the beat around. I had so many hit records that I played on. And, uh, but when, when Carl hired me, Mr. Waxman, I used to call him, when he hired me to play with Lester Lannan in Chicago, that was, that I couldn't believe, I said, you really want me to play? Yeah, I want you to play tenor. I want you to play the jazz and the uh, rock. I want you to play the tenor chair, first tenor. I said, okay, well, I was like scuffling. I was going between gigs, you know, New York running up. At this point, I'm running up to New York to do the Four Seasons, to do uh, the Shirley Ellis name game, to do uh -huh. the, the McCoys. I mean, so many hits now are going on. And, and this is in the early 60s. This is in the late 60s. Late 60s. Okay. At this point, mid to late 60s. Okay. And I'm trying to cut loose the, the saloon business, as I call it, because uh, I, I need to practice. I need, I'm going into deeper water now, and I just, I'm not just going to go up on stage with no paper in front of me. So I have to get my books out again. I have to start reading. I have to get into classical music. i got to start playing cool out flute duets with my flute buddy from Philly Root. He's getting ready to go to Vegas. He's a great jazz player, Billy Root. I don't know if you know. Well, I, I absolutely know of him through Ronnie Rubin. And of course, yeah. I've, I've heard him with Stan Kenton. And uh, Brilliant. yeah, fantastic, great, natural jazz feel, lines, uh, everything. We groomed each other. He was studying with Murray Panitz on flute. Ah. I was studying with Harold Bennett. And uh, we we shared our, our, our differences. And... Uh, we were playing flute duets, we were playing clarinet duets. And, you know, we, we got into, we really got into more intellectual music than just the jazzness of it, you know. Right. And then also I got into the jazz thing as well. You know, I was, I was starting to listen more to, to Charles Parker and to, and to uh, Benny Carter and uh, uh, the fellow you mentioned earlier, Rabbit, his nickname was. So. Yeah, Johnny, Johnny Hodges. Hodges. Right. Yeah, I fell in love with Johnny, man, and, and Benny Carter. What was your practice routine like? Was there anything that you could share that might be unique or might uh, point us, all of us who were trying to develop that still, uh, trying to find out how you can, how you had that type of magnificent control and expression on the saxophone? Well, it started out playing under very loud, thick circumstances. I had an organ, I had a guitar, I had electric bass and I had a drummer. And the thickness underneath, sometimes for me to get through it, I'd have to jump up an octave to, in order to put my point across. And then I like, you know, it worked, it worked. It was all in the presentation. How can, all right, now it's time for me to present something to play. How am I going to do this in, in the crowd? No, I had to step above it. So that's where the altissimo, I started to grow beyond the F sharp and the G and the G sharp was a very challenging. So, so it wasn't necessarily that someone specifically pointed you that way. It was your decision, your recognition the of the need to do that. It was the need to do that. And, and, then I, and then I have to ask you this as well, because I've never heard anyone play 
that part of the saxophone with such command and in tune. I mean, I, I, I'm not again, George. I, 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 I'm sitting here and I, you know, work at this pretty religiously. Too. It's really quite astonishing to hear how well you play that register and all on all of the saxophones and so in tune. So uh, again, is there was there anything other than your natural gift and your talent and your hard work? that led you to being able to play that part of the horn so well with such command and, so, and with beauty. I mean, it really sounds like a violin so many so much of the time. Well, it was just, you know, I, I don't really know how to answer that question. It was, it was where I needed to go. And there was a time where I was really down on myself because the bottom of the horn was suffering. When I got to the tenor in New York, it was Chet Amsterdam that came over to me and he said, George, when are you gonna stop, stop playing that tenor like an alto and play it like a tenor? What about the bottom of the instrument? It's a gorgeous part. And it opened up my head, not, not for the altissimo aspect of it, right. but for the actual hearty, gorgeous foundation of that instrument on the bottom, starting with the B flat, you know? and Right. And he opened my head, you know, it was like he pulled my coat and I, I thanked him. I said, geez, thanks. You're making me aware of something. Here I'm lost in the clouds. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's just something that when you're playing six nights, seven nights a week in Wildwood, New Jersey and two matinees, and you have a repertoire that calls for those notes and you're playing them every day, many times, it's a form of re repetitive. I mean, this this the principle of relentless pressure. That's where the grooming took place for me. In that was my practice. I see. I wasn't there to practice. I was there to play music, but listening to what I'm doing, trying to really lock them in, you know, right. and sing, and just forget about me, and just get into what are we doing here. We're playing for these people. So it's all about the presentation. As we talked a little bit before our interview, uh, a little known fact um, for most of us who have followed you and your career is that you were actually admitted to Curtis, uh, the Curtis School of Music uh, on clarinet, uh, and which is quite an accomplishment as uh, you and I discussed earlier, because for those who are unaware, Curtis, I think still to this day, but certainly, uh, in the 1950s, uh, would only have four people on any one woodwind instrument. So if, if one person graduated in any one year, you might have one opening, maybe two openings in a year. But it, it was quite an accomplishment because Curtis in those days was clearly the number one orchestral training school in this country. Uh, we have many now uh, that have really upped their game, but there was no question that if you were admitted to Curtis you were considered one of the four best, let's say in clarinet, the four best clarinetists of your generation, of your age level. There was not a question about that. So you must have really, uh, really had some wonderful ability and facility on clarinet at a young age as well as the saxophone. Well, I, I played, there was a time when I played in the Germantown Youth Orchestra clarinet. I played in, I, I'm in, uh, junior high school, or not even yet, they took me out of grammar school and they put me in the uh, junior high school, all city 
orchestra and concert band on clarinet. Was that for that was for high school kids, right? No, junior high school. Junior high school kids. Okay. So I'm now in junior high school playing in the clarinet section, in the concert band, and in the orchestra. Right. There were two. So that's three. And then it became a little more overwhelming because as I got into junior high school, they added the senior high school orchestra, all city and concert band. So here I am playing all of this classical music. And some of the stuff was very challenging, you know, uh, but we, we had good directors and they knew how to teach us how to learn these things. And we take the parts home and we would work on them. And that, that was a very busy time in my life where those formative years between the ages of 10 through when I graduated 17. So yes, I had, I was already being groomed and Mr. Heilica was so disappointed when I told him I was going to go to Vegas, Reno and Tahoe. Plus my group, I was playing with my right. group weekends. So, but when in that, in that first semester of the one semester you were at Curtis, the six months, who was your teacher then at that time? Who, do you remember who you were assigned to? Giuliatti. Ah, Tony, Anthony Giuliatti. Anthony okay. Giuliatti. Well, wow. So you, you really were going full steam ahead, at least at that point, as a 17-year-old, uh, you know, on track to have an orchestral career, theoretically. But you also, on the side, had your group, and, and, uh, and like you told me earlier today, um, the, the call of uh, gigging and, and having some exposure and all that was too much to turn down. Well, I was very loyal to my band members. I mean, we all grew up together. In fact, uh, my drummer, we're the only two that are still around. Uh, Pete Cozy, he's still my favorite drummer. I keep telling him that. He says that I'm lying. <laughs> but we're good. We're so close. Pete, Pete is a real keeper, man. He, I love this guy. And we... We started the, we started out when we were 12 years old with the play with wow. the trio. Uh, it was the Bach trio. It has nothing to do with Bach. It was Bender, Opaliski, and <laughs> I see. Okay. Three initials of our last names. Right. The Bach trio, and then later became the Rockenbox. <laughs> and then later on came the review, the George Young Review. And that's the one that did the Ed Sullivan Show. We've had a lot of great corn players on our show, but we're gonna open up the show this evening with a review, it's the George Young Review, and just wait until you hear his saxophone. Let's have a fine hand for the George Young Review out of Philadelphia, let's hear it.
information here, and they open at the Camelot here in New York this week, and we'll be there for your opening. You're just oh. fun. Let's have a Thank wonderful you. hand Thank for you for another young Philadelphia has a tremendous tradition of, of great musicians in all styles of music. So in growing up, I mean, you had the Philadelphia Orchestra in the heyday, a magnificent Philadelphia Orchestra with legends on every woodwind chair. Yes. You also had some of the greatest jazz musicians and some of the early rock and roll uh, R&B players there. I mean, you had all these influences uh, around you. Can you speak to any individuals uh, besides your teachers, perhaps players during those formative years who really made an impression on you and may have pushed you in certain directions? Yes, Buddy Savitt. Buddy Savitt was, he was a mentor of mine. I see. Not formally mentioned, but as I look back, he influenced me greatly playing on his second tenor with his glissandos in the right places and his inflections is the way he would phrase right. and I would I was very impressed with it and I always listener that I am I would I would take on whatever he's doing and sort of glorify it to a point where all right if that's where we're going to go with this thing let's go do it together and my ability to play with others grew from that point on, where when, when you're playing, you have to encompass all. You don't just think about yourself and listen to yourself. You, how am I positioned in my sax section? Right. Am I, am I, is my signal, is it too loud, too soft? Am I sharp or am I flat? You have to check out, immediately check out all these ingredients before you proceed into doing the music aspect of it. Right. And right. in listening like that so acutely, you pick up things like Bernie Glow, for example, in New York. Yes. Charles Colello came over to me one time and said, Georgie, how come you don't phrase the horns for me anymore? Because I went in like a, I went in like I was Buddy Savage. Right. <laughs> and I would just say, here's where it is, because we'd be doing a rock and roll song. But I heard something, I told Charlie Colo, I said, you know, Charlie, I heard Bernie. Bernie's got a better idea. So I'm gonna go with Bernie. And, and, and just, just to intervene, for those who may not know, Bernie Glow is one of the greatest trumpet players, esteemed, uh, beloved by colleagues, and the most beautiful sound, and uh, I, I, I guess you'd have to say clearly a legend. Oh, um, you know, I mean, I. There isn't a word or a compliment high enough that I can bestow on Bernie. Bernie was, he, he was tops. He was at the top of, of what I was hearing. I mean, there's a guy going at nine o'clock in the morning and play classical music, you know? I mean, play a, play a very delicate passage on the trumpet and make it sound like that flower I was mentioning earlier. Yeah. I mean... And that's the, that's the real artistry and the beauty that you learn from when you're, when you pay attention and you're listening to it and you go, oh my gosh, listen to that. Wow, I wish I could sound like that. Yeah. Well, now let, let's just jump ahead a little bit. Coming to New York uh, and getting into the studios, I mean, it, you know, people read about these things and hear about them, but it's not that easy. How did you, 
sort of make your entree into the New York studio scene? What led to that and how did that evolve? Well, when I got to New York, I would try to play with every every opportunity. That's where I met Lawrence, playing at uh, one of those rehearsal places down in the basement on 50-something Street. I forget what it is. Oh, maybe, was it the Colin Studio uh, rehearsal? Yes, thank you, yes. Yes, I remember that place. Yeah, going in there, waiting your turn to play with the big band in there. It goes through right. parts. Gene Rowland's arrangements. Right. And I mean, oh my God. And... <laughs> And that's where I met Lawrence, whoa, uh, <laughs> who I love. I really love Lawrence. Lawrence is, there's a talk about a, a talent that's ultimately on top of his game. Yeah. With the instrument. I mean, yeah, he's a passionate music lover and student of the, of, of, of the discipline for sure. Yes. But that's, that, that, I would go in there and I would, and then when I started doing dates, I would bump into the other tenor player or the other baritone player, uh, Joe Farrell, who was just off the road. Uh, and Joe, Joe would say to me, uh, Georgie, and he would giggle. He had this giggle. <laughs> he would say, <laughs> push in and play faster. He would say to me. And when I'd get to Philadelphia, Harold Carabell, I'm doing a Broadway show in Philly at the same right. time. I'm running back and forth like a roadrunner and and uh harold carabel carabel would say to me georgie will you pull out and play slower you're playing like those new york guys man <laughs> so i figured i figured that my pitch and my time were somewhere around exit 12 on the, on the, on the turnpike yeah, that's that's cute hysterical well but but i think what you alluded to is the idea that you have to uh, be willing to put yourself out there and do any gig, whether it's paying or not, a freebie, and just just to play music and meet people and and you know ultimately if if you're deserving, things will eventually turn your way. And you help. You go there. You if if something's missing, and you find it, you 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 fix it. Like one time, I'm sitting next to Romeo who was one, another one of my mentors, Romeo Penque. Yes. And Romeo, Romeo's playing, <clears throat> he's playing the, uh, I don't remember what part it was, but there was a wrong note at the copies. And I picked up on it and I told Romeo, I ever so delicate, I said, Romeo, I think, I think that's a B natural on that, that chord. And he, he was so, enamored with the fact that I was helping and he complimented he gave me one of uh, such a high compliment which I felt I didn't deserve but he he was he was a wonderful he he brought the love to the situation he one time went in his pocket he said try this mouthpiece we're getting ready to make a take and I said well we're getting ready we're gonna Gee, you'll get used to it in two minutes he says for two seconds I put it on and whoa, you know, <laughs> he says, see, he says, keep it. That was Romeo Pinkway. That That's called being a mensch. Absolutely. And the other one was uh, Phil Bodner. Phil was another one. Oh my God, how, how I love those guys, man. I learned so much from them. 
as well as Joe, as well as Wally Kane. Yes. You know, and, and the list just goes on. There, there's no one individual. There, there's something to learn from everyone. And a funny joke, something about time and tempo, like Bill Avonia, the drummer. Yes. I learned more about odd meter music from Billy and playing uh, Greek gigs with Gus Valley and that, that whole seven and nine and five and oh, 11. And uh, even challenged myself to write music in those odd meters and, and make them swing, you know, write them in a way that they would they could swing with a proper bass part and a proper drum part and the way the figures would lend themselves on the paper to the player, you know. Right. But that's where it is. And I also tell all my students, well, I'm thinking of that. Playing is just the tip of the iceberg. The real music is inside. So if you're playing and you just want to improvise a couple notes on your instrument, be it a clarinet or saxophone or a flute or a violin, write them down. Write those four notes down. Maybe you have the beginning of a little piece of music of an original. Take it somewhere. There, you know, there's only 12 notes, so you can you can stretch it. You read an octave. I used to have kids write for their lesson. I used to have them take their telephone number and then one, two, zero, and each 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 number would indicate a, a pitch. Right. Zero could either be a wild card or a rest. But don't forget the rest because there has to be space in composition. Can you talk to the, I mean, I know equipment is always a, a thing on woodwind players' minds, especially doublers, and it's something that's always changing. But generally, could you talk to maybe the, the middle of the road, the setup that you would remember yourself playing most, let's say in the 70s and the 80s? Uh, in general, what would you play on alto, tenor, soprano, clarinet? And, and what was your flute of choice? Well, I, my, my flute of choice was the one that Harold got for me. And then later I went from the Harold Bennett head joint to right. the uh, Lou DeVoe. Okay. Oh, he was a great loss. Lou was another wonderful gentleman up at Haynes. Right. And, and so yeah. you, were playing, you were playing Haynes flutes pretty much throughout your career? Yes, totally. And I played, uh, I bought Romeo's uh, it was a Japanese model. Maramatsu? Maramatsu flute, silver. Right. Beautiful flute from him. And right. I played on uh, metal Haynes piccolo. Yes. With a winged embouchure plate. Right. Which I purchased from, uh, oh, this wonderful flautist. Oh, what a doubler he was. Anyway, I bought that from him, and then I purchased a, from DeVoe, I, I got a, uh, a wooden Haynes piccolo. Okay. When I was touring with Liza, I had a lot of piccolo to play. Right. And uh, <clears throat> one time I was practicing my piccolo in my office in New York on 57th Street above uh, the Russian Tea Room. <laughs> Byers, there was the little Carnegie Theater. Right. The recital that, hall. Excuse me? Was that the recital hall? No, the, the, the little Carnegie 
Realty, excuse me. Oh, okay. Above Russian Tea Room was this building, this old decrepit building, where several musicians, Dick Kleiman was my neighbor in the back. And this one morning, it's like five o'clock in the morning and I'm practicing piccolo because I have a <laughs> coming up and I want to really, you know, get get the weeds out of the piccolo, if you know. And I'm, and I'm going through my exercises, having fun with them. All of a sudden, my neighbor on the organ, I hear the same exercise whatever I was doing, the gibberish, I'm doing. <laughs> the is playing the very same thing <laughs> on his organ through the wall. And we both at the same time went out in the hallway and looked at each other and started crying with laughter. It was the most, one of the most <laughs> wonderful moments of, of my practicing life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, what a memory. Not, that's a nice memory. Uh, oh, he was wonderful. Yeah. And um, all right. So the flutes, you're, you're playing Haynes pretty much for your career, uh, yeah. with the exception of that uh, flute that Romeo gifted you. And um, saxophones, oh, you're a Selmer guy, I think, pretty much up until Most recently. Of the time was all Selmer. Right. All, all Selmer until the 80s when I was going to Japan for the first time. And Steve Gadd said, look, I'll, I'll make sure I get you up to Yamaha because you might enjoy that and you might find something interesting there. So I went out and purchased. I went, I went over to Jardinelli's and Jack Anquay was working there and I purchased a Yamaha 62 uh, Soprano. I had a Selmer, but I took that with me and... Uh, I, I got to meet I got to meet all the people at Yamaha where <clears throat> where their plant is and it was very interesting the way they were a very meticulous thing I love I love how they care so much you know I really do <laughs> It's been a wonderful ride for me. I've been so blessed that it's ridiculous. Well, but you've also, uh, you, you know, yes, that, but that also comes with the work you put in and the, the artistry that you have uh, shared uh, for generations now, George. And that, I mean, you know, it, it, it sort of comes back in a, in a circle all the time. Uh, so, but you, you have created a, a quantity of work a body of work that really uh, still to this day, guys talk about it. And, and I wanted to mention something that not only Lawrence Feldman, but Roger Rosenberg has told me uh, in just talking in general, not even about, uh, in preparation for this interview, 
that you were one of the few guys uh, who would always welcome younger players, people who were just getting into, uh, let's say, the higher level of, of, of work in New York, the higher level, the better level of, of work and studio work, that you were always accommodating, encouraging, uh, would put them on, you know, gigs to cover you if, if you couldn't make it. That that and that is not the typical situation. That is not what um, most of us found. But you were one of the few people who would do that, uh, and uh, with no hesitation about hiring anyone uh, if you felt they were deserving. And that's uh, a little bit of what you imparted, Romeo and Phil Bodner represented to you. So, you know, it's wonderful to hear that, but also for you to recognize that uh, others feel that way about you. Well, you know, I feel it was always the right thing. You know, when you get so busy that, you know, you're, you're trying to adjust your schedule. And it was really the heyday of studio playing and studio work that every time a, a key, a key person to help was Lou Soloff. Lou, once he got involved with staying in New York after his blood, sweat and tears situation, and he concentrated mostly on his jazz playing, he would always know who's who, who's coming into town. And he told me about Lou Marini. He told me about Jerry Nywood. I mean, the, the list, and, and then Alex Foster was coming up from Philly. And they needed a they needed an outro player for the Saturday Night Live show back in the eighties, and I was I would do it you know with the big band every time they would uh, augment the 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 group right. going back to the Belushi days you know, but uh, I I recommended Alex they were they were squawking about ethnicity and stuff like that so I said. Call Alex. Alex could do it because I had already used him uh, or suggested him right. on dates and rehearsals that I was unable to, to do. And I always got thank yous and, you know, kudos on, on the, especially his clarinet playing was. Right. He was a very high level clarinet player. Yes. So with that in mind, uh, and then Marini came in one time when I had to run on a Miller date and I had met him for the first time because Lou, because of Lou's high recommendation, I, I had him sit down and finish the date. And that was how I met Lou Marini, just on, on the word of Lou Soloff saying, Marini can do it. And he sure could. And the rest is history. Sure. Well, well it, it, Jerry Nywood, unfortunately, who we yes. lost, but there was another brilliant, brilliant yes. player of our instruments. Yeah. Well, but you know, that's what it should be. And that's what you, uh, you know, you certainly grow up thinking it's going to be like, but then when you enter the business, you realize that it's, it's rare. It's it rare. Like that. Under normal uh, circumstances, it's, it's abnormal. <laughs> right. That, that, unfortunately, but still, that's it speaks well to, to, to you and your way you looked at your uh, place in the industry and also how you treated the profession. Um, it's also, you know, getting out of the way, as I mentioned earlier, and having your chief reason for being as a helper 
and always thinking about the music and how can we make it better? Sometimes you don't have to. Sometimes it's right there. You play for, for Michelle Legrand. You don't have to touch a thing. Just play the notes and the music will bring you right in. And this is true with a lot of classical music. I mean, if you just listen and pay attention, it'll happen. But you got to get out of the way. You know, you can't, you can't overshoot it or you'll miss, you, you won't, you won't put the putt in. You know what I mean? You can't. Yep. Yep. No, I know exactly what you mean. And, and There's a time to be bold. Right. There's a time to set a precedent for the lead. If you're playing lead out though, you want to lead, but once you get your gathering, cool it. Let, let the section do the work. I mean, you're splitting hairs, but to listen to that degree is how important it is. Right. Yes. And no question. Um, if you were to give advice to young players today uh, who were looking for careers as, as multiple woodwind players, uh, do you generally, many people believe, I, I'm actually one of them, that starting on clarinet is a benefit in going forward on saxophone and flute, and even if one wants to go into the double reeds. Do, do you believe that to be true or not necessarily? Absolutely. I do believe that because it, there's no better foundation than, like Frank West said, the clarinet was invented by three cats <laughs> that didn't know each other. Right. And he said one time he hated the clarinet. He told me, Georgie, we're going to go into Central Park. We're going to have a burning man. So <laughs> don't take the clarinet. Let's go to Central Park. We'll put them in a pile and burn them. <laughs> but, you know, but you know the funny thing about Frank West that I found out that he never admitted that when he was in college, he, he was a flute major uh, after the war, but that he had played originally he was a clarinet major at one point. Yes. You know, so he, he, we know with his talent, there's no question he would have played oh, beautifully. No question. Frank, talk about a, talk about another mentor and the great storyteller on gigs. We would sit around and he would tell these stories and take you there. He actually had a beautiful way of taking you to the situation he was talking about. Marvelous human being. Well, no, I loved him so much. I'm not the only one. We we loved Frank, and we were so saddened when he when we lost him. But hey, look, time runs out, you know. So what you have to do is encourage the youth to do the right thing, and don't play so loud. Don't play so many notes because you have all these keys. That that's not where it's at. One note at a time will get you there better. And another thing to mention is. When you practice to the point where you feel you can play with others well enough, go out there, reach out to another player that's into the same kind of thing that you are. Play those clarinet duets, saxophone duets, get some Lenny Niehaus saxophone duets, whatever. And then the flute duets, I mean, they're quants. There's a wealth of flute music, clarinet music and stuff for training. Yes, for training, and then if you have someone else to play with, you can you, you can learn how to do that better. And then there's the trios and the quartets, and and it just encourage yourself to grow beyond yourself. Right, that's really where it's at. 
Absolutely. And and in wrapping up our discussion, George, let's t- tell us what you're doing these days. I know when I spoke to you uh, earlier this week, uh, you said uh, you don't get involved with the internet so much because it takes too much time away from practicing and, and composing. So that uh, hit, hit me straight between the eyes that you are still uh, geared right down the middle and working on your music, uh, you know, as hard as ever. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing out now in California these many years? Well, I have a quartet who, you know, we haven't played that much because of the pandemic, but I've been putting together a lot of my music as well as the standards that we play and uh, both songbook, the American songbook, with our, our stylish way of approaching them, as well as the classic jazz repertoire, and then my original music, and then the pianist is now writing. I'm so happy that I've encouraged him to bring something to, to, the, to the table. And then trying to find the time and, and adjust that time between composing and practice. And the practicing, it's like, I wish I could do that 100-yard dash like I used to. <laughs> so, so that's the one thing, you know, less is more. Uh, I learned this from Frank West. As he was getting into his elder years, he sort of like honored the space more instead of being the note pusher that he was always capable of being. I mean, we're all there. We got we got these buttons on these instruments or these on clarinets or flute. But the thing is, melodies are good. You know, telling a story. You know, improvising doesn't have to be. Uh, Look what I can do all the time. It sometimes it, it erupts to that. Like when I would do those concerts in Japan, and the music would you know start kicking me in the butt to do something then i would have to really push the envelope to a degree where it became quite challenging but just just to go there i was well conditioned to do it and i managed to get through it and i was very happy and felt blessed at the end of of an exhausting concert because the japanese their demands no ballads, no ballads. Everything yeah. has to be, you know, macho, you know, cigarettes and machoism. Right. That, the philosophy over there with music in the jazz theater is, unless you're a big name and you don't kowtow to their demands, it's, it's seldom you can play it. I, I got to play New York State of Mind one time and the, and the producer over there, who, who Kawashima said, George San, you made me cry. I said, well, you know, it's we have to do more ballads. You know, people like ballads too. I told him, right? There's nothing wrong with the melody and giving your heart to the people. You know, in the heyday of the studio period, your studio work. Describe, let's say, a, a, a typical week, what it might be. Let's say maybe during the period of time when you're doing Saturday Night Live as a regular. What would the normal week be like for you? 
you know, in, in a general way, Monday through Sunday, what it's just to give the younger players an idea of how much work and what the demands were on people who are in your position? Well, we'd start out usually on a Monday, anywhere 10 a.m. <clears throat> That's when the jingles would start. Sometimes, very seldom, but nine o'clock would be a call. But the majority of the starting days was 10 o'clock. And they would book it with a possible 20 or a possible 40, depending upon uh, if, it's, if, if it's a campaign, if they're doing a, a campaign from for one of the big right okay and just for the younger players when they say possible 20 or possible 40 meaning that the player had to allow a possible extra 20 minutes beyond the schedule time or 40 minutes beyond the uh time you were booked for in case the session ran over correct correct and that that held for both 20s and 40s and then from that point you'd be, you'd be running to another you'd be running to another you try to program them in a way or schedule them in a way that you would have enough time to get there on time and get set up with the next instruments that you had to play. And usually you would be carrying them around with you. Right. And <clears throat> then mid-afternoon, you usually would start your record sessions, your recording or you're doing phonograph records. And that would go into the evening, seven to 10. Sometimes it would go beyond. And then this was a daily, sort of a daily formula way that the people in the industry would call in their sessions. The jingle, sometimes in the afternoon, you get a jingle date in the afternoon or maybe in the, very seldom in the evening <clears throat> because you couldn't get the best players in the evening. They'd be on record dates doing doing something. Right. And, and just, again, this is the era before cell phones. And so for the younger players, there was uh, generally a, a central uh, service called Radio Registry. Correct. That people who needed musicians would call into and re would request a musician or would have the registry contact musicians and tell them where the recording was going to happen at what time and what instruments to bring. It was a completely different world than we are in today. Yes, in each studio, the, the popular studios would have a phone there that was a direct line to radio registry. And when you walk out, getting ready to leave the date, there would be a bulletin board with call radio registry, George right. Uncle Radio, and that's where Lawrence was like a savior for me because God bless Lawrence Feldman, man. Of all the subs that I've ever had, he was the best one for me. Right. He, he, he knew how to get on my corner. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was hysterical. I mean, the way he could uh, copy what he thought would be the way I approach a date. Right, and I, I I never thank him enough for that. He, well, he has he does have that wonderful ability to emulate styles, and he loves doing that, and he still does. So, yes. uh, so I'm sure he'll be happy to hear you say that. Uh, He's a match. Yes, <laughs> yes, he is. I'm a sugar match. <laughs> well, you know, the maid who's I have to tell you about one guy who's an unsung hero is Danny Bank. Oh. I learned more from Danny Bank about the clarinet 
the saxophone and the flute, piccolo, you name it, bass, clarinet, the list goes on. He had more inside scoop on the woodwind doubling yes. than, than anyone, more than any of the other people who I loved, like Romeo and Phil. And it was Danny who had, and Beckenstein, Ray Beckenstein is another one. Yes. I have to thank, I have to thank Ray and uh, Don Hammond was the gentleman I bought the piccolo from. Oh yeah, he, he was a, a wonderful composer too. Uh, but uh, a wonderful flute and piccolo player. That, I mean, top-level top doubler. Yes. I, I just want to get back to the last thing we talked about, your schedule. You, basically, you're basically saying you had easily two to three services a day during oh, those heydays. Sometimes more. Yeah. Sometimes more, because if I had to do a solo, like one time Quincy Jones, I was there, Lawrence was with me. We ran down to A&R. And uh, I had to, to do a solo on a track, stuff like that. Stuff like that on alto, yes. Which, which I had my pea shooter, and I had a Bobby Dukoff number seven star, which was, you talk about mouthpieces and equipment. This seemed to work, and it was the mouthpiece of choice for maybe a decade or Yes, part of a decade. And, and Sanborn helped popularize that. Well, I he was he wasn't playing on that mouthpiece. He was playing on a uh, a, a level air. Oh, the uh, Brillhard level air. Yes. Huh. Not not the not the Bobby Dukov. We used to call them Duke booties <laughs> because we hated them. Yeah, you know the purists hated them. Just again for the for the younger players or people who aren't as equipment, the old there are old Bobby Dukov mouthpieces from the fifties that were completely different. Another wonderful, word. wonderful mouthpiece. Brass Dukovs that were just phenomenal. But the equipment, but the the material that they made, the late the latter ones was very porous. Right. So. I went to Pepe's, the brass. Yeah, the brass guy. You know, he used to work on the brass instruments yeah. for the trumpeters and the trombones and those guys. And Joe Shepley was the one that said, go to Pepe and he'll play it for you. Right. Steal it up. Right. And that made it magic. That, that did the trick. Huh. Interesting. The, the George Marge, all the cats, man, 
next thing you see in their kit, they have their gold two-cuff <laughs> Four in the morning, I'm tapped out, yawning, longing my life away. I'll never worry, why should I? When it's all gonna fade. Philadelphia boy, George Young. One time, I, I almost made George Marge cry. How important it was for George to, we nicknamed him Dates. Yes. <laughs> Herb Bushler nicknamed him Dates, right? Yes. And one time I had like 20, 23 or 24 dates because I had to work on a Saturday. And when, when I was astounded that I had done that many dates. And I was to, going through my book and I was sitting with George, we were on a date and, and he was, man, I, he was so disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> That's very... I think, I think he did 20 because he was doing everything. I mean, you know, right. flute, clarinet, saxophone flutes clarinets saxophones oboe oboes recorders right uh, i mean you name it soup to nuts this guy he never turned anything down very very talented driven hard-working guy yeah sounded wonderful on everything you know maybe dated on certain things as you know for <clears throat> The things that you're hearing, he wasn't hearing what, say, I was hearing out of the saxophone. Right. Or the clarinet, for that matter, with, you know, 
see, the thing is, don't let the instrument do all the work. Don't, don't hook up to the instrument. You're the instrument. The player is the instrument. You have to use everything from your tummy and the entire, you know, your chest cavity, your neck, your throat, your oral cavity. It all plays a part in, in nurturing the sound that you want to present for your presentation. You're the instrument. And the instrument is like a prop, basically. It's, it's, your, it's your bugle. It's your way of saying something. But you're talking from your body with the music, if that makes any sense. It it's totally makes sense. And of course, I wish I had known about this when I was in my 20s and 30s, when I was buying every possible mouthpiece, every possible ligature. Not that I still don't check out equipment, which I must admit, but as you get older, I certainly have realized it's what you're hearing and what's in your head. And whether you're playing a Dukov or a, a Brillhart, uh, you know, a, a, a white old Brillhart, like you were playing that night, I heard you and Eric's, uh, during the period of the 80s when you were also playing Dukovs and when you're doing Saturday Night Live and all different types of music. How does one do that with equipment that seems to be so completely different? It's because the music is strong in your mind and your ears and your body. And, and you adapt. You adapt. Uh, yes. To yes. Because what that's, you want to hear it a certain way. See? Right. Getting back to that being very fussy. You want to hear, I, I got to make this sound beautiful somehow. It's an ugly piece, but I want to, I, so you take your training to that level. You take it through that filter, that, that connection right. to the instrument that's going to enable you to do that gorgeous fortissimo, you know, so that it's bold and it's beautiful because it's fitting on a noisy track. Oh my gosh, listen to that, you know, but, uh, that's not saying you're going to, that's not home plate, but if it's going to get the gig done, if it's going to make the music happy, that's what, that's all, that's what we were, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Right. Make the music happy. It's, it's all about the music. We, we just have to figure ways to make the music gorgeous or exciting. Uh, it has, music has so many personalities, sadness. It's, it, it has, you know, it's like we have to figure out a way to make the minor key smile. You know, it's, it's, Lawrence likes that expression. You know, there's so many expressions that, that have popped up over the. And we, and we don't have to play the harmonic minor to do that. <laughs> no, no, no. It's just, it's just the way it is. It's just, yeah. it's there. We just have to go reach for it and reach for it sincerely and lovingly. Yeah. Yeah, well, George, it's it's been a, such a pleasure to speak with you, and uh, you know, I hope the many people who will watch this, and especially younger players, will take to heart so many of the things you've said and shared with us uh, from someone who's lived through the heyday of of the music era, playing every possible style of music, and and hopefully, you know, during the course of this interview, we'll have tracks from uh, different periods of your career, and and hopefully, everyone will. Uh, understand now more about what you were about and what you are about. And uh, we look forward to uh, hearing more of your releases. There's a ton of CDs on your website that are available. And we hope people will uh, jump to the site, not only to watch you playing on the videos that you've offered, but to purchase some of these uh, wonderful CDs. And uh, again, thanks so much. And um, 
you know, uh, we'll talk a little bit right after the interview if you if you hang on a little bit. But anyway, okay, but if there's one more thing I wanted to just oh, get, sure get, is, you know, chameleons have a way of changing when necessary. And in a way, a good musician adapts, adopts that that same kind of a, as you're moving from one style of music to another. That's what the studio has trained a lot of us to do, to be like chameleons. You know, it's like what in Rome kind of a thing. Yeah, right. Romans right. Do. So I just wanted to share that last item of thought. And I'm here anytime, Ed. Anytime right. you want to talk about music, count me in. You, you bet. And I'm going to take up on that. But hang out after we finish, okay, for a second or two. But anyway, thank you again and, and uh, stay well. and. Hopefully we'll see you, you know, back on the East Coast uh, as things hopefully will ease up with the pandemic uh, later this year. I hope so. Thank you.